Hello, BT Focus listeners. This is Brian Kaminsky coming to wish you a happy Autism Awareness Month. To our behavior technicians and supervising clinicians tuning in, thank you for the transformative work you do each day and the countless ways you work to put the needs of our families first through the exceptional services you provide. To any parents listening, we are honored and humbled by you. Your dedication inspires myself and our entire organization daily. And we thank you for allowing us the privilege of supporting your most treasured asset, your children. And most especially to our learners, thank you for who you are. You are seen, you are heard, and you are valued for all that you are and will become. Know what a privilege and a joy it is to be a part of your journeys towards your own unique hopes and dreams. We have a great show today on our April clinical topic on what it means to create therapy environments where our learners are happy, relaxed, and engaged. Welcome to the BT Focus podcast dedicated to the behavior technician experience and the delivery of ABA services. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the BT Focus podcast. With me as always, my friend Ian McGarvey. Ian, how are you? Brian, I'm a little upset right now. Tell me more. There was snow yesterday in April. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yes. Uh what state are we in? Michigan. And what is this called? This is called a Michigan spring, where it is 72 on Monday. And then we've got white stuff on the ground on Tuesday, maybe a little hail on Wednesday. But you know what? I could be in a lawn chair right now, too. Like, you know, we, we're full circle in three days. So people can't see my face yeah. right now, but I'm, I'm laughing pretty hard. That was good. That was good. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it is what it is. Um, but, you know, I, I always say we're both baseball fans. Usually by the time we get to like week two or week three of the season, this white stuff should be gone. So uh, happy should, April should in Michigan, be. Ian. Should be. Should, should, should be. be. Should is the, the operative word there. So, all right, Ian. Well, a lot of great stuff to cover today. First thing I want to jump in on the, the topic of the month of April. April is a, a pretty special month in our field. April is Autism Awareness Month. And so we were just reflecting on, before we started recording, what that means to us. And I think you offered such a unique perspective. Do you want to share your thoughts? Yeah. Um, The field of applied behavior analysis is still very young. And I've been a BCBA now for eight years, and I've been working in the field for about 11 years. And the services that I provide today, what I do with kids today, is not the same as what I did 10 years ago. Even in the last 10 years, the way I see us practicing the field or the science of behavior analysis and, the, and working with children with autism, the perspective has changed on how we do things. And we're going to talk a lot about that today. And when you look back at the quality of life and what was available in regards to supports for people with developmental disabilities in general, and obviously now specifically children and adults with autism, um, the supports out there are significantly better than they were, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago, but there's still a lot of room to grow. And 
it's wonderful that when you look at the behavior analysis certification board, and I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but the number of behavior analysts being certified just continues to grow drastically. And I think the majority of behavior analysts that are certified at this point have been certified just within the last few years, relatively speaking to the entire number. And what that means is that we're going in the right direction and we're only going to continue to improve the quality of lives for people with autism. And that's why we're here. Yeah. So well said, Ian. Thinking about what Autism Awareness Month means to me, the point that you made of the growth of your field, reflecting on my growth as a clinician, I was 23 years old and entered the field. I was a young buck, right? (laughs) And just to think about how much my practice has evolved, it's pretty remarkable and it's reflective of evolutions in the field. In the words of Fred Keller, the learner is always right. And we're going to talk about some of the ways in which we can arrange the environment to make it more ideal for learning. So really exciting stuff. One more quote. There's a really historic coach in basketball. John Wooden, he's an Indiana guy. Yeah, Indiana, I think UCLA. But John, so this guy, I think he won like 11 national championships. He was just a total rock star. And he had this saying that I have not taught until you have learned, right? And so... It really, it coincides with what Keller said about the learner is always right. So we're going to be talking about our April clinical topic of the month that's going to be discussed across all of our teams across the country. And it's on instructional control, okay? And so it's a very broad topic. You could attend entire webinars and lectures on it. And so we're going to give you a bit of a primer, but let's just start off with a definition. Ian, in your own words, instructional control, what are we referring to? Yep. So in, in behavior analysis, Uh, we always refer to what's called the three-term contingency, ABC, antecedent behavior consequence. There's a term that we use called stimulus control. And what that means is when we reinforce a certain response in the presence of a specific stimulus. So for example, when you say the word cat, when you see the picture of a cat and that earns reinforcement, you are likely to remember that the next time you see a picture of a cat to say cat again right? And that's what we call stimulus control. Instructional control is essentially kind of the same thing, but it refers to your presence in the presentation of those task demands. And do you then continue to receive responses from that learner because you have previously been the one who's provided them reinforcement when those tasks have been presented? I got to be honest, I'm not a huge fan of the term instructional control. And I, both words can have a negative connotation. That word control just really sounds like, you know, do as I say, drill sergeant, you know, and that word instructional always just sounds like, you know, like academic school. And when you put those together, it does kind of just sound aversive. But when we say it, it really just refers to the fact that the child trusts us. The child is willing to do the things we ask because they know through previous pairing and providing of reinforcement, we are there to continue to give them the things that are good, the things that they want, as long as they continue to be willing to learn for us. Awesome. So to use maybe some more common language that I think is analogous with instructional control, cooperation, a a willingness for a child to follow your lead. In return, learn how to follow the child's lead. And so back to our original point about the evolution of our field and how we've really advanced as a science, we're going to be starting our conversation on a really 
seminal work on the topic of instructional control. And it's by a behavior analyst named Robert Schramm, um, really popular in the field. And we're going to talk about his seven steps, and we'll link some information in our show notes. But then we're going to complement that to some recent work in the field by Dr. Greg Hanley and his teams, and uh, his work on making our treatments in such a way that there is that mutual rapport and respect. And he's, his big things are, are about making an environment where the learner is happy, relaxed, and engaged, right? So instructional control is embedded in part of it, but it really complements the work in, in a lot of ways of SRAM, okay? Sound like a plan? Sounds like a plan. Let's do it. So the seven steps to earning instructional control with your child by Robert Schramm. So number one, show your child that you're the one in control of the items he wants to play with and that you will decide when they can have them. So the point that he gets to here is that preferred items, when delivered contingently on appropriate behavior, will help shape up that appropriate behavior, right? So I know that every time I follow instructions, it will result in one of those favorite things, right? So as a result of it, through positive reinforcement, we should see that desirable behavior build up. Um, it also goes on to share behavioral principles of deprivation and satiation, right? So saving those really highly preferred items or activities for those behaviors that are, are most essential, right? Um, anything you want to add to point number one, Ian? Yeah, two things. Kind of going back to the depri deprivation and satiation conversation, when we look at you know the rights of the clients we work with, we are not here to withhold things that they love just because, right? We have to find ways to, to contrive that motivation to get them to want to learn. And again, we're helping them work with things that we've determined that are just really necessary for them to, to do. And because of the necessity of some of the things we do, we have to find a way to, to teach them. And by sometimes briefly withholding access, if you will, that we may think act as reinforcers, it gives us the opportunity to create that motivation to help that child grow. Yep, absolutely. And there are certain reinforcers that we would never withhold, right, too. So, so having that balance as well. And another thing, kind of piggybacking off of what you said in regards to the contingencies, again, in the blanket statement of number one, show that show the child that you are the one in control of the items. Really, although we are in control, we want the child to perceive that they're in control. If we have paired well enough with a child, they're going to feel like the ball is in their court. When we talk about behavior change, behavior changes in result to a change that occurs in the environment. And for the child, we are part of that environment, right? So if we want their behavior to change, that requires us to modify the environment, change ourselves in some way, right? So controlling of the reinforcers, if you will, is one way that we modify the environment to evoke responding from the child. So again, we're following their lead, like you said, we want them to perceive that they are the ones in control, but ultimately we're the ones manipulating the environment. We have the control, but we make it so that they perceive that they have the control. Yeah. Yeah. We're just, we're arranging the environment to help promote that, that desirable behavior. So well said, Ian. Um, number two, show the child that you're fun. Make each interaction you have with them an enjoyable experience that they'll want to follow your direction to earn more time sharing that experience with you. 
he goes on and and really what's this uh, sh- a short for, long form version of saying pairing right we've had conversations about pairing in the past where you're following the child's lead and you're doing everything you can to enhance the interaction that you're having so um, you, you have to follow the child's instructions so perfect example my daughter who's two she, Ian she loves Justin Bieber I gotta say it um, or as she would say it daddy me no yike Justin Bieber. Me love Justin Bieber. I don't know who taught her that, but that's my daughter, Nora. But anyway, this little girl loves Justin Bieber. She loves it even more if I'm picking her up and we're dancing, right? So that's an example of how I can enhance the things that she already enjoys. And I can enter that reinforcement context, if you will. Yeah. And we've talked a little bit about this before, about that what we call synthesized reinforcement contingency. The example I always like to use is Kids, uh, a lot of kids in their their bedrooms or playrooms have those rugs that have the roads built on them. Well, mm. a rug on its own, regardless of what you put on, it's not going to be very reinforcing. But the minute you get some toy cars out, that rug now has some value to it. And so, yeah, by putting things together, sometimes they just, that value of those things really goes up, aka really? the child's going to want it more if you put them together. Yeah. Stuff is usually better with people right? Those things are often more fun if we can avoid something that we don't really like. So like perfect example, let's say I have a deadline. If I could escape from that deadline and watch Netflix, that might be more fun, right? Uh, Dr. Hanley, he, he makes this awesome point. He's like, you know, I love coffee cake. I don't particularly like eating flour by itself or eggs by themselves or sugar but when you put those things together, it makes something that's really enjoyable. And so it's a good it's a good metaphor, good analogy of uh, you know how uh, reinforcement can be enriched when added together. Right? Um, awesome. Very good. Number three, show the child that you can be trusted. This is key. Trust is what therapy should be built upon. Right? Always say what you mean and mean what you say. If you say that your child should do something, don't allow him access to reinforcement until they've acceptably completed it. This includes prompting him to completion if necessary. And that's a key addition to that as well. Um, we always are trying to put learners in a situation where they can access reinforcement, right? And there will be times when uh, a learner may not initially have that skill to Uh, perform that behavior independently or fluently. And that's where prompting comes in. Um, He goes on to make some other good points too about, you know, mean what you say and say what you mean and how that should be reflected and even how we're making statements or instructions to our learner. So if you provide an instruction in the form of a question, hey, Ian, do you want to come over to the table? Hey, Ian, do you want to have a podcast this morning? What could you say, Ian? Not that you would. What could you say? Absolutely not. (laughs) <laughs> and then I would say, sorry, buddy, you don't have a, you don't have a choice. We're doing it. No, I'm teasing. But I, I, I didn't provide that in the form of a statement. I provide it in the form of a question. So to do it the other way around, it's, hey, Ian, we're going to be recording this morning at 10 o'clock. I can't wait to see you. Or to your learner, it's time to come to the table, as opposed to, hey, will you come over to the table, please? Because they have every right to say, no, I don't feel like it because we ask that as a question, right? So what additional thoughts do you have in terms of saying what you mean and mean what you say, so to speak? We want to hold our learners to the highest of expectations. When we predetermine 
what is going to be required of a child to access reinforcement. We really want to do our best to not bend and change our criteria if possible. So for example, let's say you are working on shoe tying with a client and you've already predetermined that uh, the client has to get to, you know, a certain step within that behavior chain of tying shoes before you're going to let them take a pause and get reinforcement, have a break. Well, you know, maybe halfway through the steps, the, the child kind of starts to become, you know, as we would say, non-compliant. Do we, you know, press through that problem situation or do we kind of back off and, and just kind of let the child go ahead and take the lead? Well, some of that comes down to the severity of the situation. You know, resistance for one child is going to look very different from another child. And ultimately, the number one concern when we talk about these, you know, problem behaviors is safety of the child and continuing to maintain that trust. Um, and if we push a child too far, it could potentially tarnish that relationship that we previously worked so hard to build through pairing and gaining instructional control. And it's a fine line that we have to really be cautious about monitoring because we don't want to push a child too far. And when we do, we've got a term for that and we call it ratio strain, mm -hmm. right? When we just push a client a little too far over their limits and we, as the clinicians, again, talking about manipulating and controlling the environment, we have to know where those limits are and know whether or not we can, you know, continue to press and how they'll respond. Um, but ultimately, as long as we've taken the time to build that relationship and that child knows reinforcement's going to come, we can be more confident in being willing to push the child a little bit past their comfort level. Because ultimately, there are a lot of things that we've had to learn in life at whatever age where we may not have been comfortable doing it, but a lot of times we look back and say, oh, I'm glad I did that. And, you know, so same thing here. And it's because normally whomever or whatever the situation was, we had to have some bit of trust in what the result was going to be once we got through it. Absolutely. Yeah. We're looking to set that child up for success for their entire life, right? So that means, I love what you said, having the highest of expectations, right? Um, because our learners are capable and they're able and we're there to support that. Awesome. And I think this next point, number four, this ties in well with what you just said, Ian, about how we can build that trust, but then also start to expand and stretch some of those skills. So number four is show your child that following your directions is to their benefit and the best way for them to obtain what they want. Give your child easy directions as often as possible and then reinforce their decision to participate by following them with good experiences. And so, you know, as he goes on to say, you know, in the beginning, make those instructions really simple and easy to follow and with skill sets they have already demonstrated. And after they've done so, provide reinforcement and then gradually as those skills develop, make those instructions more complex, right? Make the task demand a little bit greater. We, um, well, maybe you could say that schedule of reinforcement, maybe you start to thin that over time. Um, but it really starts with the basics in the beginning, reinforcing early and often, and then make that task more complex as skills are developed. Brian, you brought up one of my favorite, you know, terms in the field of behavior analysis, and that's schedules of reinforcement. Oh, yeah. Um, and we'll continue to bring that up throughout, you know, future uh, monthly topics. And, so within a schedule of reinforcement or when you're working with clients and regardless of what the schedule, if we just continue to provide demands to a child that are aversive, need continuous prompting that don't result in reinforcement, 
we're likely to see that child think about in a situation where you were made to do something very difficult. At some point, we all break. And we have a term that we call behavior momentum and kind of loosely also ties into another concept we call high probability sequencing. In the more you know common terms, what we would say is what we want to do when we do therapy with our children is we don't want to sit here and just present program target, program target, program target. Because again, if these targets are in the program, these are things that the child can't do. They likely need prompting to do. And if we continue to have to prompt children, you know, again, like think about times when you've had to be coached on doing things. Sometimes when you have someone over your shoulder coaching you over everything you do, that can become very aversive. And we want to help build our child's confidence by positive trials. Now we insert something that's likely going to need a little prompting. And we're back to the positive trials. The majority of the task demands that we place on a daily basis with our kids should be mastered skills that the child can confidently do. And then we just sneakily insert some of those program targets in between. Yeah. Um, and, you know, when I, I see therapy a lot with the technicians here at the center that I work at within Centria, that's one of the things that I really want to just continue to, to coach is we shouldn't just sit here and look at the, the iPad of programs and, you know, do this and then go back to the iPad and find the next one and then do this and then do this. We really want to intermix those trials because again, we want this to be fast and fluent. And when we're including things that the child knows how to do and knows how to do confidently, it, it's just going to make things more fluent and the child's going to learn more. Absolutely. Yep. To use one more analogy or just kind of like a conceptual thing, it's like the importance of behavioral momentum and getting those really high probability tasks in first before something more difficult is if you're lifting weights in, do you just like go in, you know, go lift the heaviest thing without any sort of warm up? What are you going to do? You're going to pull something. I'm, I'm, I would definitely pull something, right? No, what are you doing? You're like, you're warming up, you're stretching, you're getting your, your body ready. You're getting ready to respond and perform optimally. It's a, it's an analogy, but that's really what we're doing. We're getting that learner in contact with that reinforcement. Um, they're having fun and then we can start to incorporate more challenging tasks. Right. So um, also I'm not going to tell you the last time I um, did any bench press, so I couldn't tell you what I'm, what I'm, what I'm pressing these days. Um, But I'm a dad now. Hopefully some of the, you know, the dad strength will come through. Well, you probably got a lot of curls, you know, (laughs) certainly with like 30 pound kids on either arm. So I, I, you know, I work out just very uh, unorthodox these days. All right, man. Number six. Demonstrate that you know your child's priorities as well as your own. So this ties back to one of our other previous topics on preference assessments. So always having a close understanding of what your learner finds most valuable in a given moment on a particular day in a particular context, right? Remembering that preferences change over time. The importance of uh, doing frequent preference assessments. And we talked about a number of different types in previous episodes. Because if you can align those highly preferred items with what's our main priority right now in a therapeutic context, what's our, what are our goals right now? What are we working towards? What do we really want to see mastered during this treatment cycle period? Um, having effective reinforcers is inseparably tied to that. There's a reason why this statement has the word priority in it. Mm-hmm. And this really now ties into the future of where, you know, we're going with instructional control and what Dr. Greg Hanley has to say. Um, we can't achieve optimal outcomes if we don't create a conducive environment for the child to learn in. And that's an environment where 
they, like you said earlier, are happy, relaxed, and engaged. And we can't do so unless we have their, you know, not necessarily their most of favorite things, because we can't always make everything accessible to them, but making sure that environment truly is enriched with reinforcers, enough reinforcers, a variable amount of reinforcers, so that again, we're avoiding satiation. We're always, we've always got that child at a certain level of motivation that, you know, we can get them to be willing to accept having to do some things that they may not normally want to do. Um, and again, that then comes back to following the child's lead, which is ultimately what we're trying to get to here is the child, the balls in the child's court. We want them to want to learn and they show us that by complying ultimately. So. Absolutely. Well said Ian. All right. Closing this out. Number seven. And I'm going to put a little asterisk on the end that we're going to circle back to, okay? And this one is show your child that ignoring your instructions or choosing inappropriate behavior will not result in the acquisition of reinforcement. So it kind of goes back to point number one that reinforcement in most contexts should be delivered contingently. So you engaged in desirable behavior X, you're going to earn reinforcer Y. Um, and I would say largely true, that should always be the case, right? Where inappropriate behavior does not result in reinforcement. But there's maybe some disclaimers to that we were talking about before the show that's really in line with the work of Dr. Greg Hanley's team. Um, what would be a, maybe a caveat to that statement, Ian? Safety. Yep. You know, um, there are times, and I, you know, I will admit my guilt, guiltiness, as a you know former technician and continued BCBA, that there have been times. Again, I talked about how my practice has changed in the last ten years. I can tell you that ten years ago, um, you know, I followed this seventh step to to one hundred percent, you know, fidelity, if you will. I, I this happened, and there were times where we had children who engaged in problem behaviors, and we spent way too much time trying to quote unquote work through the behavior. Yep. Hold the demand, right? Hold the demand in place, right? Until we get compliance. And I look back now, and I think we're going to talk a little bit more about this, you know, here in a little bit, but just ultimately there were times where we were trying to get a child to respond to one task demand for 30, 45 minutes, an hour. And that's now an hour of therapy we've lost to this child engaging in, you know, what could be potentially a traumatic situation to them that we just don't understand. Um, you know, this heightened emotional response where ultimately when, when someone gets to a heightened emotional response as such, you know, think back to, to your own experiences where you are just so upset over something that normally logical thinking just goes out the window. There's no logical thinking when you are so physiologically heightened or aroused, if you will. Mm -hmm. And we can't expect our children to be any different. And ultimately, you know, when those situations happen, we want to, you know, as you said, mentioned earlier in our own conversation, uh, live to run another trial. And yeah, there may be times, yeah. absolutely. There may be times where we have to give in. Mm -hmm. And when we do, you know, again, going back to my, you know, days as a technician, I, I took that personally. And I felt sometimes as if, you know, I lost when that happened, like I'd done something wrong. And ultimately, it, that's not the case at all. Um, we've got to get away from that feeling because it's one trial, you know, and 
think about the number of trials then we've just now allowed to occur in that 30 minutes that we might have instead of had this, you know, large, you know, tantrum like behavior, we've now got however many extra minutes, 29 and a half extra minutes of learning time that we would not have had. Yeah. In everything that you just said holds so true to me and, and really my instructional history. And I think that of so many of us in the field where you're taught that, you know, if you reinforce that problem behavior, then we're going to see more of that in the future. And really the work of Dr. Hanley's team is saying that, you know, to your point, in situations, we're not saying reinforce every problem behavior, but if the difference is between a child safety and reinforcing that behavior to turn it off, so to speak, then yeah, we, we actually would in those contexts say, yeah, it's better to get them back to a point at which they're happy, relax, and engage, de-escalate the behavior, if you will, and then from there, now we're going to quickly re-enter teaching, right? So provided that we have far more of those interactions, we're still going to be strengthening that desirable behavior, right? We're going to be prompting the correct response and, and moving on. But the key here, and this is our core value, is safety, right? And, and that for that client. So um, you had a really good suggestion that I would love to share about. Like for so for if you're listening to this and it's like, man, I could really resonate with that. What are maybe some good takeaway messages? Absolutely. If you're listening to this podcast and you're sitting here saying, you know what, that that's my kid. Um, you know, on a daily basis or a, a frequent enough basis, we're spending you know large durations of time in our session working through these problem behaviors, you know, again, that's time that the client is losing where they could be just continuing to learn. And if that applies to you, I highly encourage, I highly advocate that you have a conversation with your BCBA or your behavior consultant about, you know, the, those situations and what you can do to reduce the occurrences of that happening. And again, like you said, Brian, live to run another trial. Sometimes we just, we do give in and say, you know what? Okay, you know what? We pushed you a little too far. Let's just take a little breather here. Let's take a break. Let's step back. Let's get back to happy, relaxed and engaged. And we can try again later or, or try again pretty soon. And again, you know, in that moment, we may know, okay, this was too far. We know the next time we're not ready to push that far yet. Absolutely. You know, as Dr. Hanley says, um, our learners, they vote with their feet, meaning if there's something that they don't want to do, or they're, I'm going to use air quotes, so they're non-compliant, there's a high probability that we as the teacher are missing something. That environment is not reinforcing enough, um, or the instructional methods that we're using um, may, may be lacking in some way, right? Our, our learners, it goes full circle with the, the point of this, the topic of this podcast is that our learners should want to participate. They should elect to participate in therapy because it is so rich in reinforcement. So that tantrum is actually a really important data point that we can do better here. There's something that's missing. There's ways that we can enrich this environment more. And so that it is a, this dynamic back and forth um, rapport, right? And so um, I just think that, you know, we as a field can learn so much from our learners and that, you know, as Dr. Keller says, the learner is never wrong. So any final thoughts, Ian? I love this conversation. I think it's an important one and it's dialogue that is much needed in our field as a whole in ABA. Yep, and the last point you made uh, about, you know, the learners wanting to learn. There's actually some very young research out there right now about something that's called the enhanced choice model. 
And what the literature is showing is that if you give the child a condition where they can access reinforcement freely as they come and go <clears throat> versus if you make reinforcement contingent upon learning, the current very young research actually shows people would rather work for things than just be given things freely. Um, and I think it's because eventually, you know, maybe not early on when kids first start working in, in discrete trial instruction and ABA therapy, but at a certain point, learning has its own reinforcing value to people. And there are other parts to learning that produce reinforcement that we may even be the ones kind of contriving or not. Um, you know, there's a social aspect to learning that you don't get from just accessing reinforcement freely. And, you know, again, this is not ABA terminology, but pride, right? We're, everyone has some pride in themselves somewhere. And when you accomplish things that are difficult or are things you don't like, there, there's a sense of automatic reinforcement that comes with that. You know, a good feeling inside of you that you did it. Like you yeah. did it. Yeah. I love that, Ian. So I'll share one quick story, a little anecdote, if you will, that is in line with the enhanced choice model about choosing to do something hard. So in a past life, I, I ran two marathons and there's a joke among runners. Ian, do you know the best part of running? The being, runner's high? <laughs> that too. No, being done yeah, 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 is yeah. part yeah. of running, right? So I'm electing to do something that is incredibly difficult. Uh, run if I can, walk if I have to, crawl if I must. I'm, I will get across that finish line. And it's something that, yeah, I, I have a great source of pride for that really hard thing that I worked through and accomplished and um, that were aligned with my values and I could do with friends. And, uh, you know, our hope is that our therapy environments are something similar where our learners who will elect to participate, they are working on goals that are aligned with their values and they can look back on their experience and and say wow i really i, I learned so much i came so far um i think that's a great way to end the podcast great and also i don't know where my running shoes are i think one of my kids stole them so uh, it's been a little bit <laughs> it's been a little bit since i've been out on the trails but i i will get back yeah awesome thank you so much in any parting words or thoughts for our audience sure absolutely Again, you know, just want to reiterate that even within the last 10 years that I've been practicing in the field, how we go about teaching children with autism has changed drastically. You know, when I first started, we went from, again, using a procedure which we call escape extinction, where again, we know one of the side effects of using extinction is what we call the extinction burst. And it produces what could potentially be harmful, high magnitude problem behaviors. And, and again, it becomes a power struggle, as someone might say. Um, and we don't want the child to have to experience that. We don't want to have to put ourselves through that. It's aversive for everybody. And we've learned that learning can occur without having to have that power struggle. As you said earlier, live to run another trial. There are going to be times where, hey, you know, it's all good. Like we, we didn't get what we wanted, but that doesn't mean it's that's it. That's that. We live to run another trial. And a minute or two later, you get to try again. And, and maybe the same thing happens. But eventually, we're going to shape that child's behavior because reinforcement works. Yeah. And we've maintained that relationship. We've maintained that trust. And yeah, it's so key. It's so key. And I, I think that this is just one of those conversations that I think is so important to have in the field. So behavior technicians have these conversations with your clinical supervisors 
ECBAs talk to each other. You know, um, really, this is an important topic that um, a lot of great research is coming out. I- I'm going to link in our show notes the two resources that we reference, and I encourage you to to really read it and have some good di- dialogue and conversations because. April is Autism Awareness Month, and as we as practitioners, we always need to be advocating for what's in the best interest of our learner, which means enhancing our practice and learning and getting better day by day. So, And, 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 great, and grateful that we get to. A hundred percent. Absolutely. Yeah. It's an honor and a privilege to do the work that we do every day, um, and it takes a community of, of people with aligned values, striving towards the same mission. So we're just so thankful for those of you that are listening to this podcast that are a part of it. So I think it's a perfect way to end today's conversation, Ian. Until next time, my friend. Have a great month. All right, you too. Thank you as always to Ian and for the rich context offered by the work of Robert Schramm. Now we spent a lot of time talking about ways we like to teach our learners. But even more important is reflecting upon what our learners can teach us. I want to close with just a few excerpts from an article written by Dr. Greg Hanley, which is linked in our notes, called A Perspective on Today's ABA. First, learn by listening. Ask the autistic person and or people who know and love that person what they love, what they hate. Ask that person about their voice. How do they routinely communicate? And especially, what are they communicating? In other words, today's ABA starts with asking questions, listening, and learning about the autistic person by people who know and love the person. Second, learn by creating joy. From that conversation, put together a context in which the autistic person will be happy, relaxed, and engaged, and one in which they feel safe and in control. Do not restrict in any way their freedom to do or move. Keep the door open. Follow their lead physically and conversationally. Third, learn by empowering. After you're confident that you've created a safe and engaging context, there is zero probability of any severe problem behavior. It is time to empower the autistic person further and establish trust. Teach them that you see them, hear them, and understand them. Fourth, learn while teaching. The path to a joyous life is paved with skills. The aim of this process are continually informed by feedback provided by the autistic person, both in terms of what they say and do. This treatment process is one in which the starting point is happy, relaxed, and engaged. The themes of I see you, I hear you, I understand you, and I am here for you persists throughout the entire process. Thank you for these words, Dr. Hanley, and thank you to you, our listeners. Until next time.